Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Those of you who were caught up with holiday preparations or closing the books at the end of last year might have missed the debut of ChatGPT. But that chatbot probably should have supplanted Zelensky on the cover of Time magazine for the potential impact it could have on all of us. ChatGPT generates articulate and nuanced articles in response to short prompts. Want to report on the World Cup final written in the style of Shakespeare? or a story about Russian strategy in Henry Kissinger's voice? No problem. ChatGPT can produce it. Want to pass the U.S. medical licensing exam? No problem. ChatGPT just did it. What could possibly go wrong with underlying technology that can research, write, draw, code, compose music, and possibly even think at least as well as many, I would tempted to say most, human beings? My guests today have offered to help us understand not only what's technically called generative artificial intelligence, but to think together about the impact on jobs, on creativity and innovation, on how we live and may live in the not-so-distant future. Juan Enriquez is an entrepreneur and an expert on the impact of life sciences and brain research on society. Mark Abdolian is a businessman and academic who works at the intersection of strategy, operations, and analytics. Welcome, Juan and Mark. Thank you, Alan. Great to be here. Let's start with some hopefully simple, at least for me, explanations. British academic Paul Taylor recently wrote in the London Book Review that Chatbot GPT is so good at generating convincing answers, it's easy to forget it's a model of language. So let's start there. What is a model of language and what are generative artificial intelligence tools? Mark? When we think about ChatGPT and we think about some of the underlying technologies, Alan, as you brought up, uh, they're basically partially a a family of language models. And the family of language models, when we talk about AI or you'll hear about NLP, natural language processing, starts very simply. It starts with, I'm going to say a word, I, and what's the next word that I'm most likely going to say, am, is, are, etc. So what these language models do is they'll take a word, they'll break down the sentence into the subsequent words, and they'll look at the probabilities of the next word being associated that, with that word from a contextual perspective. So that's how they started. Um, when we talk about generated uh, AI, um, it, it gets a little more complex, but it's it learns exactly as we learn as individuals. And and one, um, this is a much more his purview from a biological perspective, but uh, it it really is learning about pattern recognition. It's learning about is this the right answer and having this reinforcement loop or reward feedback for getting the right answer. And if you got the wrong answer, try again and try to rethink what you're doing. So from a very high level, um, it's mimicking a lot of our uh, human learning and and biological contexts. 
To that point, Juan, how similar does a machine learn to how a human learns? So there's a huge debate about that. Um, And there's a huge debate as to whether all the stuff that's going on is simply additive or whether the stuff that's going on is something that looks completely different and is a completely different animal. Um, One of the ways that people are learning now is these things called neural networks. And they're, they're trying to imitate in some sense how the brain learns. The only problem with that is we don't have a good model as to how the brain learns. And we don't have a map of the human brain. And we don't understand how with you know less watts than a 25-bulb watt, we're doing calculations that are astronomically complicated, like how to catch a baseball. Um, so the answer is machine learning is way far away from human brain learning. So when ChatGPT popped out of the toaster uh, at the end of November, it was reported that the chatbot had been fed 570 gigabytes of data, which is something like 300 billion words. And that was a long time ago, after six weeks old. So it must have lots more have been fed into it by now. That's a massive amount of input, which raises all sorts of questions. For example, how does a chatbot resolve contradictory information? How does a chatbot recognize a mistake? Which is another way to ask, and it's a question to both of you, how does a machine learn? It's one thing to pour all of this information, all this data into a machine. It's quite another thing then to sort through the contradictions. We are getting close to asking the question, how does it know the truth? So let me me come back to this difference in definition between the brain and machine learning. So what you just said is incredibly important, which is that there is huge amounts of data that is going into making a chatbot that can speak or predict uh, what comes next or what's coming next. And let me just give you some order of magnitude on that. So the amount of computing capacity necessary to power AI is doubling every 100 days. And it's expected to go up a million times in the next five years. So, you know, this is an absolute brute force model that's coming at you. And, you know, if you thought Bitcoin was using a lot of energy, um, this stuff, the, the important thing to understand is it's not chat GPT. It is 20 or 30 different programs that are being adapted incredibly fast that are coming at you at speeds which are hard to comprehend. It it took years for the major apps you have on your computer to reach a million customers. It took this thing five days. And and it's scaling across a whole series of things. It's not just chat GPT. So huge energy consumption, a lot of brute force, some very interesting results. By the way, the source of the previous thing was Eureka Alert, uh, which I think came out yesterday. Well, and there will be an endless stream of these things. And we tend to think in U.S. terms, but I am sure the Chinese are at work on this and the Singaporeans and the Israelis and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, 
It's the wave, not of the future, but of the present. But it goes back, I, I go back to the question, how do these logarithms resolve those contradictions? You pour a ton of information into it. And there are, by definition, put aside the bias in the information gathering. We know about bias in AI. That, that, that's a well-established problem. What I don't know, and, and, and maybe it's the wrong question to ask, is those contradictions. How are contradictions resolved by the chatbot? So uh, let me actually, Juan, you said something um, super important, and let me pick up on that. Um, Alan, a lot of the technologies underlying Chatbot GT, the different algorithms, they've been around for a while. And what makes you know uh, Chat GPT so successful is they figured out how to scale it. Um, and and give, give you a quick example. So you know when we're doing machine learning, you're talking about AI, and it's usually a neural net which is all, all a neural net is, you got a bunch of inputs, you're trying to hit a target output, and trying to say, hey, is it an A, an apple, a B, a B, or C, a cat? Um, and then it has a, uh, it's gonna use a network in the center to say, hey, is this line of reasoning usually a yes, no, or could be a continuous thing? Is it correct, right? And it's going to take inputs of either A, the apple, B, the uh, B, or C, the cat, and it's going to compare it with human-labeled outputs. Yes, this is an apple. Yes, this is a cat. So just like we learned how to read or how we, how we learned to do our jobs, it's going to kind of go through trial and error and then learn, was that a correct classification or not? So that it does similar to you know how we learn but what the machine can do that we can't do is the machine doesn't get tired in silico learning in the computer we can have it perform the same tasks over and over and over again this is uh, what uh, Juan was talking about a lot of the brute force and the energy consumption absolutely um, but it can do millions of repetitions and learn iteratively from that. Whereas, you know, I'm going to get tired. I'm going to get hungry. I'm going to lose focus. And I'm not just, I'm not going to be able to have that same sort of learning experience. So that's where AI and neural nets can become very, very accurate, not on general intelligence where we need experience and context and all this stuff, but very focused and limited challenges. And, and that's what I think uh, we've seen. I agree with Mark, but I think there's a element which is additional. It's not just repeating stuff. Um, a couple of places where it got very weird for me. There's a wonderful professor at MIT called Sandy Pentland. Mm, yes, yes, yes. The social physics. Yes, I know. Yeah. And, you know, he runs the Center for Bits and Atoms. And what he does is he brings together how you make stuff between computers and actual making stuff. And the course he teaches is a semester-long course, and you learn how to fabricate stuff in, you know, the digital world and in metal and in plastic and 3D printers and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing. And one of the grades is based on what can you make that's original and how do you choose to make it and how do you design it, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, kids spend a semester working on their project of look how cool this thing that I made is. And this one kid shows up with what looks like the best project, and it's a 
vase for flowers that is beautifully colored in the style of Dali and has shapes that look like Dali shapes. And, you know, everybody's ooing and aahing at this thing, wondering how long it took this kid. And they start asking questions. The answer was two minutes. Because what he did is he asked ChatGPT to tie itself to a printing and designing uh, AI. And when you bring those three things together, then this thing designs a vase in the style of Dali that's spectacular, that could be in a museum, in two minutes. And then the question that Sandy had and the rest of the class had is, how in the hell do you grade this kid? Because obviously the project is original. Obviously it hasn't been done before, at least in that class. But obviously this kid spent two minutes on a project that other kids spent six months on. And, and you know, that's going to be a real question as to how do you grade stuff when people start putting together automated projects and automated design? I've seen architects do the same thing where you send them a picture of a room and the architect will tie together with AI on this and say, okay, here's what it looks like in a jungle theme. And here's what it looks like in a modernist theme. And here's what it looks like in a old British theme. And it takes them all of, you know, a minute per charrette to design the whole damn thing. But you've pointed in the direction I wanted to go, which is, innovation, and creativity. Um, ChatGPT, as you've described it, as you both described it, is essentially brute force working on massive amounts of data um, fast, uh, faster than, than, than we could possibly process even a fraction of that information. But it's like everything, it's garbage in, garbage out, brilliance in, perhaps brilliance out, which is the, what you just described with the Dali vase. Smart or wise, and there's a huge difference, humans can make intellectual leaps. They can innovate. They can imagine. So the question is, and I would call that creativity. Again, we could probably spend hours talking about those words, but, but just except for a second. Can these kinds of models create? Um, or are they limited to combining and endlessly recombining the inputs and the genius is in asking the right question as happened in that classroom. Uh, and the rest is just brute force at work. Mark. Uh, interesting question, Alan. And we could also have the discussion on, you know, how do we going to define creativity? Is it, you know, human induced or is it going to be some AI induced thing? Um, but, you know, if we look at, and it isn't just chat B, uh, uh, GPT, um, but uh, Juan, as you were saying, uh, there's AI out there that produces music. There's AI that produces art. That's it's creative and it's visually pleasing and you know auditorily pleasing. Um, but the the human question is, how, how do we evaluate that and, and what does that mean? Because the computer and, and the machines will get smarter. Um, some of the technology underlying this and the generative part of the G and generative uh, pre-trainer uh, transformer is that you basically have two AIs working against each other. So you have one learning and then you have, you have like maybe a teacher or an adversary trying to mess things up. So you got your trainer, right? And you got your learner. 
And that technology has been around for about uh, 10 years. It's all open source. And that's really sped up a lot of the AI learning so that it can do some interesting, more out-of-the-box stuff. So, um, But that gets to asking the questions, that, Alan, I think where we were going, what implications is this going to have for us? Not just for learning, um, but professionally and then ethically, right? I, I want to get to exactly that question in a second. But earlier today, I asked ChatGPT uh, whether it can imagine an invent. And the answer that it produced was some, some AI models, such as generative models, have the ability to generate new ideas and new content. However, the, their capacity for imagination and invention is currently limited compared to that of a human. That said, as AI and machine learning research continue to advance, the capacity for imagination and invention in AI models is also expected to improve, but it is still far from human level. I would agree with that one. You know, the, what's fascinating about this thing is it's almost a Rorschach test for what you think a brain is and what you think consciousness and what you think learning and thought is. So take something like the example you used at the beginning. This thing can pass medical boards. What's really important to understand in this whole model is that it hasn't been tied to the internet yet. So what it's doing is it's taking basically a corpus and has read all the world's books and all the world's X, Y, Z, and is predicting based on, you know, how would the Bible write um, a Shakespearean play? Because it's read all of Shakespeare and it's taken the Bible and can do a mashup of stuff. So it's, it's a little bit like, one of these rappers that samples from here and samples from there and creates a hit song, um, Bad Bunny. Um, and, and so as you're thinking about that stuff, it's really important to understand this thing has not yet been connected to the internet. And there's two things coming down the pike that I think are going to be very important. One is chat GPT-4, which a series of people are now testing in beta, but has not been released to the public is orders of magnitude what this thing is. And one of the main supporters of AI has been Microsoft. And it has just valued one of these companies, OpenAI, at about $29 billion and is investing more in that company. And is going to tie that to its failed search engine, Bing. So it's going to superpower this thing. And, and you know, Google's looked unassailable for a while. Not a lot of people are, you know, using the old Netscape browsers. Um, but this thing could make Google and other browsers look like, you know, Stone Age tools in a very short period of time. And the adoption rate for something like this could be days, not years. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org donate.
So let's think about practical implications, good, bad, ugly. Uh, I can imagine whole categories of jobs that exist today that might not exist a week from now. Uh, I can imagine uh, fundamental changes in processes and, and way beyond education. Put aside the New York City uh, school system has already banned it, whatever that, whatever that means in practice. Um, and I think they are, speaking of the Stone Age, I suspect those folks are in the Stone Age. But as you guys think about this animal and, and what's coming, which is, as Juan, as you've just said, is going to ramp up at, at just the nth degree fast. So what? How, how does it impact life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? So start with the question about how you measure IQ. And just think about what happens. It's not a question as to whether this thing can predict or create or whatever the hell, but, you know, if you take this and you think about how long is it going to be before this thing can pass an IQ test at mental levels? And, and the answer is not long at all if it can't do that already. So, you know, just that's, you know, one rough measure, but it's a measure which we consider important for pattern recognition, for a bunch of other stuff. You can argue whether the tests are biased or not. How much do you want them to be biased by? 10 points, 20 points, 30 points? What's really important to understand these systems is you, you can move from a machine that has 150, 160 genius level IQ to something that's got 1,000 points or 10,000 point IQ equivalent in months or very few years. And, and we don't have a clue how the hell we interact with something that's got 10,000 point IQs. I mean, there'll be areas where it won't have that. There'll be areas where it looks really stupid. But holy bananas, this thing could have ability to solve things that we haven't been able to solve. Mathematics equations, um, discovery of theoretical physics, et cetera, et cetera. Is it there yet? No, it's not. But as soon as it gets to the level of Nobel theoretical physicist, you're, you're not that far off from speaking a language that these folks haven't conceived of and may not be able to understand. But even at a more mundane level, uh, legal research, why would anyone in their right mind, if they're running a law firm, hire a bunch of legal researchers when it's all about the question and pushing a button and you get, you'll get at least, no, that's not fair. It's not fair to AI. You will get a much better response than you're probably getting out of the iterations you have to go through with legal researchers. Same in banks, same in et cetera, et cetera. There's all of the, and that's what we're training a lot of people in colleges to do. So this isn't about, well, we still you need football players or we still need, well, I don't guess we won't need truck drivers. Uh, but, but at that mundane level of the potential reordering of how our economies work, this kind of data processing capability, which is what it is, um, on steroids, which is what it is, uh, and maybe much more than that. So, um, well, I, I agree with Juan. The answer is 42, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Alan, I don't look at it as mundane, but I look at it as, you know, a, a daily 
augmentation of our human intelligence, right? So think about, you know, the information arbitrage we had to go through when, when we were in school. You actually had to go to the library. Speaking of the Stone Ages, exactly. Yeah, back in the Stone Ages. And uh, I remember I, I looked at microfiche a few times and that was interesting. Um, but today, I mean, uh, information, uh, the information arbitrage is all about Dr. Google or Professor Wikipedia. It's a, it's a search, right? And it's pulling that information. Now, that's just information that could be data points, et cetera. But how do you take those Google searches? And then what we would do as researchers or as humans or as, you know, the legal research analyst or someone in, in an investment bank is to say, hmm, let me take that desk research and let me think about how I can do the synthesis together, what kind of questions I should be asking, the writing, and a summar and summarizing it, right? Because that's kind of what it's doing, right? That's very, very useful for anyone and everyone from, you know, students to, um, you know, managers to getting a report that's going to condense that process in seconds. Now, accuracy might be off. Uh, we know it's biased. It's not trained on the latest stuff, as we were saying. But that sounds like humans. Accuracy is an issue, not trained on the latest, latest tools, uh, biased. Um, what's the difference? So um, this is going to do it with a lot less energy consumption, right? And a lot less thought consumption. And you'll be able to scale it. So you'll be able to do, you know, these kind of searches and have an awesome primer if, you know, you, you have some domain expertise to go in and say, oh, that's not right or that's not wrong. But at least I got 80% of the way there, right? That's going to be uh, an enabler and, th and that's going to make things different. So let me come back to your first point, Alan, which is, you know, New York City is banning students doing assignments on this stuff in schools. I think they should be doing exactly the opposite. And, you know, one example of that is what happened in chess, where pretty quickly, you know, a chess program could beat any um, of the top players in the world. But a human plus that program is more powerful in that program alone. And there was just a huge kerfluffle as to whether the guy who was taking on the world champion, Carlson, was using a computer program in the background to triage his choices. And so you have this dilemma where a whole bunch of professions are just going to be vaporized, right? Accounting, notaries, um, forensic, uh, you know, look at legal documents, you name it. Almost any white collar job is going to be hit by this stuff. I think there is a chance that people who learn how to use this early and effectively are going to do better than AI by itself and certainly than humans that don't understand AI. So you, you may get a similar phenomenon to what happened with Silicon Valley and, you know, on the coast where these new technologies, this ability to go digital early and fast, creates disproportionate splits in wealth and generates enormous amount of wealth in very concentrated communities. And that, that is perfectly possible with the stuff. And therefore, what New York should be doing is exactly the opposite. 
which is to adapt its curriculum at lightning speed so that kids understand what this is and how to use it. It's exactly the opposite. Mark was trained as an economist, and economists believe that the more people you have, the more wealth you can create. Uh, strikes me that this kind of technology has just turned that upside down and backwards. Uh, the Chinese, who've just recently announced that their population is in fact falling, should be celebrating uh, and, and are undoubtedly investing very heavily in this kind of technology because it makes each element, each person becomes, to the point you just made, potentially much more valuable with the proper education, the proper environment. Let me, let me let Mark answer the economist question, but let me just put a small footnote on the trends in this stuff because the, the Chinese question is a very important question. So on CDO trends, um, you have an article came out this week that the number of AI papers globally jumped from 25,000 in 2012 to 135,000 in 2021. But what's really important in this is that while the U.S. led the publishing in 2012, the most cited papers in China in are in 2021. And they topped the American tally by about 70%. And that's important, especially for the top 10% of these things, of, of the papers cited. Now, there's all kinds of ways of gaming citations. You can put out a lot of papers. You can cite, cross-cite a lot of stuff. But I think almost everybody would argue that China is at least in the race, if not at par or ahead in the race. And, and that's an incredibly important thing to keep an eye out on. Because the, the next thing coming down the pike, if it becomes a reality, is quantum computing. And if you tie these technologies together with quantum computing, you're, you're going to get evolution not on a linear scale, but on a step scale in days on this stuff. And, and you're shortening these year-long time periods to others. But let me apologize, Mark, for interrupting because the economist question and, and job creation is just a really important question. And before you go, Mark, I'm going to be rude again and interrupt because underlying Juan's point, Eric Schmidt last year led a, uh, a, a, a small group that looked at the national security implications of competition with the Chinese in various various sectors of technology, they concluded, consistent with what you just said, Juan, that a, in AI, China is a, quote, full spectrum competitor in many sectors well ahead of us already. So if, if we live in a world where competition is not shared, collaborative, positive outcome events, uh, the Chinese issue is, is really quite an interesting one to, to think about. Now, Mark, economics, jobs, is this good or bad for our friend L in those equations we worried about as kids? Actually, let me tie it back into this because, um, no, no, because that's where the answer is. Juan's uh, absolutely right. Over the last decade, um, shifting in terms of AI research patents has gone away from the United States. Uh, we're not the number one uh, uh, patent producer anymore. Um, also, we're not uh, investing around the world. The Chinese have uh, passed us on FDI. But what does that mean in this context? So getting back to some of the technologies underlying chat GPT, as well as you know some of these other AI uh, platforms, they're all open source, which means the algorithms 
are up. You can get them on uh, Git, GitHub. Uh, all you need to do is have access to uh, the internet, and you can get the some of the best and brightest algorithms and data, whether you're in Silicon Valley or the Panjshir Valley. So what this gets to, Alan, now getting back to apologies to our economist friends, it's not the size of the economy, but it's the quality of the economy. So a lot of people think, hey, it's GDP per capita, right? I can have a huge market, right? But, you know, if I got too many people, then uh, it's not a good quality of growth. So maintaining that quality in terms of technology, leveraging individuals, uh, capacities is super, super important. Um, today, I think 60% of the jobs around today did not exist a generation ago. I think there's a McKinsey uh, site on that thing. So um, in terms of what's going to happen, AI looks to get rid of, um, you know, all the uh, low labor jobs and the highly repetitive stuff, right? Um, I, I'm with Juan on this because it, um, you're going to have the human computer interaction. And it, so it's, you know, it's artificial intelligence. I like to call it for intelligence augmentation. So it's human computer interactions. Um, what's interesting is I don't know if we're going to see net job destruction or net job creation because some things are going to change. Right. But you're talking about the United States now, very specifically the United States. So in the States, uh, I think we're going to see what we've seen in the past, not only in the States, but other places. Individuals' lives or livelihoods are not perfectly elastic production functions. I can't change my tooling and my skills overnight. AI can. So it takes time to transition to these new opportunities and some people can retrain and pivot and, and they, they have the capabilities. Um, other folks are just going to be disenfranchised and we'll see sunset industries and lobbying for subsidies, protectionism, trade barriers, just like we've seen with the automobile industry in this country, uh, aviation uh, and, and a lot of other sectors. So, and that potentially is consistent with Juan's point about social inequality. Absolutely, because these stressors, all they're going to do is further, you know, uh, drive existing structural, gender, religious, ethnic cleavages um, that exist. So, um, they're going to start amplifying these things. Well, there's also you could see how you could use a power like this to completely change stuff. And for almost, well, for all of its history, the dismal science economics has been the allocation of scarce resources. And what's fascinating to me about the past few years is you, you've moved into a place where you can give everything away and be better off. And the digital world, the cost of an extra Gmail account right, or a photo account is close to zero. You can give everybody in the world a Gmail account for free. You can give everybody in the world a photo account for free. And the company grows like hell. And you generate enormous wealth. And, and so the question on this stuff is, you know, you could see something where half the working hours go away and you get paid more on a universal basic income because you'd have the resources to do it. And, and there the division of labor, which becomes really important is, so what are you gonna do about getting a plumber? What are you gonna do about getting a painter? What are you gonna do about getting an electrician? 
what are you going to do about not cooks? Because a lot of that stuff will be automated um, at the you know fast food level. But there are scenarios where you could pay those folks an awful lot more and still have everybody off better off and still, you know, instead of lawyers working nine hour weeks, you could see them working 30 hour weeks in a much smarter way. You could see going from a five day work day to a two day work day with massive output at the same time. So I, I don't want everybody who's listening to this think, oh my God, this is how the world's going to end. It necessarily leads to horrible things. It, it could, but it really depends on how we design this, how we control it, whether you follow Asimov's rules, rules for robots, whether you can enforce Asimov's rules for robots. Um, but you are at a breakpoint, and it's a breakpoint where things happen in days, not in decades. The social and political implications and challenges are enormous. We've not talked about them. That will put a marker down on the table for next time. Uh, but we title this series New Thinking for a New World, and this conversation certainly qualifies uh, both on both ends of that equation. It's both new thinking, and it sure as hell is going to be a new world. Uh, probably already is, and we're just discovering it. So I want to thank both of you, Juan Enriquez, Mark Abdolian, um, and we'll come back to how do we get from where we are to where we might want to be, which you both suggested could be a better world. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Juan. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. Mm-hmm.